Sony. Hello, Canada. Today's date is November 16th, 2021. Welcome to a full edition of Canadian Common Sense. 45 minutes of unedited, unscripted, and for right now, uncensored commentary on Canada's issues. It is Tony in Saskatchewan. And Luke here in battered and bruised BC. Yes, I'm not going to ask you how you're doing because I already know, but in a very quickly coming up segment, we are going to talk about that. Yeah, we are. On the show tonight, Canada is the laughing stock of COP26. Winter arrives with a vengeance. Turmoil in conservatism in Canada. Is conservatism in crisis? Alberta signs a child care deal and more. Where do you want to start, sir? Well, let's start off with the big news of the day, and that's uh, BC. <laughs> um, wow. You sent me some videos and some pictures, and yeah, for the first time in 136 years, the lower mainland of British Columbia is not accessible by land to the rest of Canada. That's right, yeah. It's pretty bad. It's it's really bad. I mean, it, it, I don't know. I mean, I'm finding the news is doing a real terrible job of portraying the damage. Um, it's, uh, I mean, even our, even our political uh, government, or our provincial government, sorry, the NDP, they won't even admit that the Coquihalla Highway is all but destroyed. Um, they won't even admit it. They're like, well, we don't have a date for reopening yet. And it's like, uh, I can tell you it will at least be six months. Wow. Like it, it is pure devastation. Yeah. Um, well, I saw that the, the pictures of the Coquihalla, uh, I think that's just East of Hope, correct? Where it's all washed out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's it's between hope and merit, and um, it's pretty wild. I mean, there's at I've counted at least three bridges on the Coquihalla Highway that have been washed out. Wow. Um, I mean, six months is really pushing it too. Like, I I think it might be longer than that because just the engineering alone is going to take months. So. I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the Coquihalla is only open to, like, you know, one lane of traffic in certain areas, like alternating traffic and stuff like that, In, in maybe by summer. Um, it, it's, and for those of you in different parts of the country who don't know, the Coquihalla Highway is the main artery in B.C., it is, it's like the QE2 in Alberta uh, or the, or the 401 in Ontario. Um, this is the main artery. This is where the majority of all the goods in Western Canada are transported through from the Vancouver port on trucks down the Coquihalla Highway to get to the rest of BC, to get to Alberta, to get to Saskatchewan, 
I mean, this is this is mega devastation. Um, Vancouver is completely cut off from the rest of the the country. I mean, it's uh, there's four highways that you can take to get from the lower mainland to the rest of BC. And all of them are closed. The Coquihalla is all but destroyed. The uh, Fraser Canyon, which is the Trans-Canada Highway. Um, the Coquihalla basically replaced the Trans-Canada Highway um, when it was opened in 1985. Uh, because it cut the travel time to Vancouver by two hours. And so the Trans-Canada through the Fraser Canyon, um, which is where Lytton um, used to be before it burnt down this summer. Um, the Fraser Canyon highway, the trans Canada highway is, is all but destroyed. There's points where I don't even know how they're going to reconstruct things. Um, the train, like the train tracks for the, uh, for the, which, which again, they run down the, the Fraser Canyon Highway or Fraser Canyon alongside the Trans Canada. They're all but destroyed in places. Um, so the trains that bring grain from the prairies to the port in Vancouver, the tracks are gone in places. Uh, the the trains that are like the, the tracks that are transporting oil that. They can't transport in pipelines because nobody will let us build pipelines in this country. Uh, those tracks, the same tracks, so they're gone in places. Um, the pipelines transporting oil and uh, gas to the lower mainland uh, have been shut off because they've been damaged. Um, Vancouver's going to get a real taste of what it is they've been pushing for with uh, getting rid of oil and gas. Um, this is, like I said, it's pure devastation. The, the, the city of Merritt, which is where I was born and raised, uh, virtually all of it was underwater. Um, my parents had to evacuate yesterday morning um when they were leaving town they uh they were pushing 18 inches of water with their bumper and lumber from the mill was floating down the road they they were pushing lumber out of the way while they were driving um they uh they've managed to get to you know a safe place and, and and everything um it's it's unreal i mean merritt was flooded when i was a teenager uh i was at school and our school was by the river when i was when i was in high school and it was a, an ice jam up river that that let go and this just this rush of water and chunks of ice the size of the size of uh cars 
came crashing down into town, took out a couple of mobile home parks. Chunks of ice were hitting our school. It was, it was crazy, but this, that it's got nothing on what they're going through right now. Unreal. So what has caused the flooding this time around? Uh, this was caused by a, what they called a atmospheric river, um, <laughs> which is just a fancy term, I think, for a really big ass storm. <laughs> um, it, it, it rained as much as they nor as we normally get in a month in a period of about 24 hours. And it, it, uh, they got 200 millimeters of rain, I think. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. I mean, the river's. I mean, one of the bridges in Merritt has collapsed. Um, and that's like where my parents live in, in Merritt. It's accessed by three bridges and it's the only way to get there. Like the, there's an about a third of the city lives in that area. And you can't get there except by br these three bridges. And one of them collapsed, uh, I think, this morning. And the other two, obviously, they... I mean, they've closed the city off. You, you're not even allowed into the city. Um, but one of the other bridges, I think, like, it's... I'd be surprised if it's even structurally sound. Um, and then the last one was high enough that, you know, it's it, it probably avoided a lot of the damage that the other, other two um, took on, but... I mean, who knows? Nobody will know until they, uh, the engineers assess it. Um, but the bridge that collapsed is the oldest of the three. Uh, it's built on clay banks. I mean, the, the area is called clay banks. Um, there's clay on both sides. And clay, as anyone knows, uh, when exposed to rushing water, it just washes it away. Um, and that's what happened there. And it's, I mean, if anybody's seen the video online of the mobile home that was floating down the river and crashed into a bridge and it just disintegrated, um, that's the bridge that collapsed. Okay. Yeah. You had sent me that video. Okay. So, uh, yikes. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I mean, the, the high school had probably between four and six feet of water in it. Um, the uh, it, it's just devastation. Wow. Yeah. Now, this I don't. I have to ask this question, and it's a rhetorical question. But you had mentioned that trailer parks are victimized by this flood. Trailer parks get victimized by tornadoes, and basically any kind of natural disaster. So, why the hell do people keep living in trailers? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you've ever been to BC, you'll you'll understand the cost of living kind of um, relegates a lot of people to mobile home parks. <laughs> um, good point. Yeah, yeah. It's the unfortunately for the mobile home parks in in Merritt, they're they're all located right beside the river. Oh no. Yeah. So when the when the water went over the 
dikes, it, the first things the water or the mobile home parks. Um, right. My, I was speaking to my dad before I came on uh, the air here with you, and told me that the water has apparently receded back to within the banks of the river, um, and that uh, at least in the part of town where they live, although they are on higher ground, so their their house was was safe. Um, the, uh, their part of town, apparently now the streets are free of water. Um, but, uh, the rest of town has still got a lot of water in it. Um, and, uh, and even though the water is gone, the damage is there. I mean, the water was, was deep and it, it, I think it got like at least two thirds of the city. Unreal. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like people in other parts of the country, you might not understand what it's like to live in the mountains. Um, and I'll, and I'll give you an idea of what it's like when it comes to having a road closed. Because we live in the mountains, there's only a handful of roads to go anywhere. Because building highways in the mountains are difficult and expensive, right? So you you only have a handful of roads. If you want to go to Vancouver from here, there's only two. And if you want to go, if you if you live up in Hundred Mile House and you want to go to Vancouver, there's you have really you have two choices from there. They're different ones than the ones we have, but there's only four for the for the entire province. There's only four roads that get you to Vancouver from the rest of the province. Um, any other anywhere else in this country, you might not understand what that's like because, for the most part, the rest of this country is flat as a pancake, and there's roads that go everywhere. I mean, I lived in Alberta. There was roads everywhere range roads every you know kilometer or whatever like there was it they were everywhere so if one was closed you had another hundred to choose from that's not what it's like in bc and so when one highway gets closed all that traffic moves on to two others or three others although highway 99 where the mudslides happened that stranded 300 people and we now have found out that one person has died that's not really a viable route. It's two-lane road. It's not. It's very twisty. It's not. It's not a road that you would send big trucks on or use as a main access for the lower mainland. Um, now it's heavily damaged. It's got the mudslides uh, with. Um, that that's going to take probably weeks to clean up. Who knows what the condition of the highways are like under those under the mudslides? Uh, the Coquihalla, like I said, I would be surprised if it's even opened again in 2022. The Trans Canada Highway, again, same thing. I'd be surprised if that even opens in 2022. 
Um, the only other road is the Hope Princeton. And the problem with the Hope Princeton is that Princeton was under eight feet of water. There's, mud, there's mudslides on that road as well. And nobody knows what the, what the highway is going to look like once they clean those mud, the mudslides off. It's, it's crazy, man. It's apocalyptic out here. Now, just for perspective, the valley where the, all this flooding is going on is only like one valley or two valleys away from you, correct? Yeah. Um, I mean, even the the city of Carameas, which is not too far away from us, uh, it's it got flooded as well. And the reason is because the headwaters for the river that goes through Carameas uh, is further up into the mountains and it got hit by the storm. So they had a rush of water on uh, their river, even though the city never got hit by the storm, they still flooded. Um, the rest of them, I mean, it's, it's the Fraser Valley, which is Vancouver, Abbotsford, Chilliwack, Hope, right? And then from there, there's two valleys. There's the Coquihalla Valley, and then there's the uh, Fraser Canyon that kind of the, the, the two highways co uh, converge there in Hope. And so both of them got hit all the way to Merritt. Uh, Kamloops, not as bad, but and Salmon Arm, but it was mostly. Uh, it was the damage was mostly from Vancouver to Merritt, which is still a large chunk of real estate. My goodness, it is. It, it's it is big, and it's. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we were lucky where we were because we we kind of got just the edge of the storm, so we got a little bit of rain, but only about half an hour's worth, and um, but we got some high winds. And, uh, but now see, my sister lives down on the coast and, um, so we're completely cut off from her and she, she and her family, like they were experiencing the storm head on, like, cause it hit there harder than it hit anywhere. And she said it was just relentless, relentless sheets of water for a day and a half. Wow. Unreal. Yeah. Now our our provincial government has and I hate to get political at this point, but they have done an absolute terrible job of informing the public. I mean everybody knew that this storm was coming, but and, and our government was asked today by a reporter why they didn't have a news conference to, to warn people of flooding and to stay home and on all of this. And they said, well, nobody expected it to be this bad. And, and the reporter responded with, well, Washington state managed to notify their citizens that there was going to be flooding. And uh, he and the uh, and Mike Farnworth 
the NDP safety minister, he had no answer to that. And it's it's shameful. They, they've been absolutely terrible. I mean, we have a uh, text message, you know, service here, just like every other province for uh, emergency situations where they could have they could have emailed you know, or texted everybody in bc or everybody in just the southern half of bc to warn them and they never did and it's absolutely shameful they can't even admit that the coquihalla is as damaged as it is i mean it's it's shocking how poor they've dealt with this that really is that's actually embarrassing you know yeah, and this is coming on the heels of how poorly they dealt with the forest fires in the, uh, in the uh, heat dome that we had in June, where you know we had temperatures soaring up to 47 degrees where I live and up to over 50 degrees in Asuyas. And, um, and we had 595 people die from the heat. And... Um, and yeah, like they, they, they did a terrible job dealing with that. They had a terrible, or they did a terrible job dealing with the forest fires this summer. And they did a terrible job with this. So no, I'm, I'm just, I'm just flat out um, disappointed in them. And, and it, and it, yeah, I, I, I just, I'm kind of at a loss for words at, at how poor they did. Well, I'm really fearful that they're that like the heat dome, like the forest fires. Somebody's going to come out on the news and say this is all because of climate change. And oh, oh no, that's already right started. Now. That that's already started. Oh, for crying and, out loud! And and the the government is as guilty of it as anyone. They're the ones. I do. I was just watching it just just before we came on the air here, and they were saying. And Mike Barnworth was saying, you know, this is climate change and it's here to stay. And, and what, which is uh, different than what every other government is saying. Every other government thinks they can actually stop it. So maybe, you know, there's a bit of honesty there. I can give them credit for it. Um, but he, he says, you know, this, this is climate change. And we were told this is going to happen more and more frequently. You know what? Natural disasters happen. But he's already blaming it on it, saying, oh, yeah, we've been warned that there's going to be more and more of these weather events. Well, where the hell were you guys last year when there were none? And where are you going to be next year when there probably won't be very many? Because these natural disasters tend to happen in groups. And, I mean, we've seen that in the past. Um. I mean, natural disasters happen. They happen all the time, and they happen everywhere around the world. And as far as I know from uh, from uh, uh, data, that there's actually fewer natural disaster events in the last decade than there were in the decade before that. So I'm 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 so sick of this whole. This is climate change. You know, whenever I say, oh, we had the coldest, like last summer, we had the cool, 
the coolest summer on record in the Okanagan. And I was told, oh, weather is not climate. <laughs> but when we have an event like this, oh no, weather's climate all of a sudden. So Yeah, the hypocrisy drives me nuts. Yeah. But anyways, they did a terrible job. That's all I got to say. Um, I really hope they do a better job on the cleanup and the reconstruction because BC has been devastated. This is this is going to take us years to recover from. Well, in your favor, Justin Trudeau loves the lower mainland and west coast, so you might get some federal assistance. Yeah, it still isn't going to speed things up. So, I mean, it's it, these things take time. Engineering takes a lot of time. I know because I used to be an engineer. It takes months to engineer things. And then it it takes many, many, many more months to build things. So this is this is going to be devastating to BC for a long time. Yeah, that's sad. So, uh, well, stay strong out there, my friend, and uh, hope for all the best. Thank you. All right. Well, let's move on to the national stage. And we, uh, I mentioned to you earlier, hey, let's talk about conservatism in crisis. And because due to a, uh, a petition started by conservative Senator Denise Batters, to, who's from Saskatchewan, and full disclosure, I've met her on both social and political occasions. She began a petition to, I think it was start a petition to remove Aaron O'Toole from power or from the leadership of the conservative party. And then you go and drop me with some breaking news just before we start the show. (laughs) I did. Yeah. And that is that Aaron O'Toole has kicked Denise Batters out of the conservative caucus. You know, I'm really starting to wonder about the dictator that is Aaron O'Toole. Bert Chen, who was on the National Council for the Conservative Party of Canada, immediately after the election, called for a review, not necessarily of Aaron O'Toole, but of his leadership and how he handled the election campaign. Well, Bert Chen is now under investigation. The party wants his emails, his text messages, and basically the blood of his firstborn for daring to go after Aaron O'Toole. So, you know what? Aaron O'Toole really is a liberal in a blue suit because he's acting like the exact same dictators that the guys in the red are. Yeah. And it, and it's funny because, you, like you say, the, the dictators in red, which, I mean, you're referring to Justin Trudeau. Um, yeah. I mean, Stephen Ledrew, even. I mean, he's the former president of the Liberal Party of Canada. He calls... Steve or uh, Justin Trudeau, and he did that this past weekend on the uh, Roy Green show. Um, I and I agree with you. I think Aaron O'Toole is acting just like Justin Trudeau, and and, and this is something that you and I have been um, sounding the alarm bells about with Aaron O'Toole for a little while now, like especially during the leadership or through the uh, election campaign, when he just decided to change conservative party policy on the fly 
because he licked his finger and stuck it in the air to see which way the wind was blowing and answered the reporter with, because I'm the boss. Yeah. And that one didn't sit well with me. And it's, it's, and then when he had said that, you know, all of my, my MPs agree with, with my position and the, and the platforms of the party, or they won't be sitting in, in caucus. And it's like, whoa, and he's proving it now. I mean, throwing Denise batters out because, and to be fair, I mean, if I was the leader and somebody started a petition to remove me, I'd be pretty pissed off too. But wow. Wow. Yeah, but you, don't, you don't remove someone like Denise batters from the conservative caucus. You talk to her, you address her concerns. You, um, you, you try to, to get, this petition shut down you don't you don't just kick her out of caucus i mean maybe they tried talking to her and stuff but i think that i think that uh i mean she's a pretty reasonable person from all accounts so maybe there was a way around this without kicking her out because i mean denise batters i mean she she's not just a nobody in the conservative party She's somebody in the Conservative Party. Oh, yeah. She has quite a high profile. And fun fact, she supported Peter McKay in the, in the leadership contest that Aaron O'Toole won. Hmm. Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not particularly impressed with Aaron O'Toole lately, especially with how he left, you know, Leslin Lewis out of the caucus. Um, how, uh, how he's, you know, anybody that doesn't, agree with them 100% just gets left out in the cold. Yeah. Well, we had a good talk, you and I, about that when he had announced his shadow cabinet and he announced shadow cabinet ministers and then deputy shadow cabinet ministers. And among all those left out with no position at all was only 36 or 39, maybe members of the 109 member caucus. And they were people like, Shannon Stubbs, who openly called for Aaron O'Toole's removal, uh, Rachel Harder, who was pro-life and a social conservative, and many other people who were pro-life. And we thought, well, that's that's kind of interesting that he's, you know, swayed his shadow cabinet in one particular direction, mostly. I mean, there are some social conservatives who are part of the shadow cabinet, like Andrew Shear, for example. But by and large, they're, well, I think how you said, they were brushed off to the kids' table. Well, I'm 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 really surprised that someone like Shannon Stubbs is left out. I was surprised that you know Rachel Harder was left out. I was and I and I was and I was surprised that Leslyn Lewis was left out. I mean, these are all strong, smart women, and the conservatives have been accused of of you know by the liberals and the NDP, mind you, but in the in the Canadian mainstream media, they've been accused of you know, not being inclusive and uh, and open to other ideas. And, and, you know, they could have easily shown that they were not like the rest. And all they did was show that they're just like the rest. Well, that's a good way to put it. Uh, and we know just from watching CPAC or you're watching the news in general, Rachel Harder, Shannon Stubbs, I mean, they were both 
excellent in question period and mm -hmm. you know, excellent in the House of Commons. I mean, these are two very, very good MPs. Leslie Lewis obviously just got elected, but she's very smart. She's very articulate. She's very passionate. I think she would be great too. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and so, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, I'm not, I'm not a fan of Aaron O'Toole's and you know, what's really funny is, um, I'm trying to remember who it was on, uh, the Roy Green show of the, uh, beauties and the beast segment. Um, but, uh, one of the, one of the, uh, women, not Michelle Simpson, but the, actually the one who's conservative, I can't remember her name. Um, oh, Catherine Swift. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. She actually said, Aaron O'Toole, you're the tool of the day. <laughs> I was like, that's something we've said on this show. <laughs> yep. Yep. I like Catherine Swift. I've been following her for quite some time, even when she was president of a Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Yeah. She's a, she's a smart lady. I like her. She is. Yeah. But yeah. And, uh, We'll move on from Aaron O'Toole to provincial conservatism and the United Conservative Party of Alberta had a magical number of 22 electoral associations needed to trigger a leadership review of Jason Kenney. These EAs would obviously have to pass motions to force or demand a leadership convention. Well, they've got 22. So now the sword of Damocles hangs over Jason Kenney and Damn, what the hell's happened to conservatism in this country? Well, it's self-destructing. It is. And, and conservatives always find a way to self-destruct. And this is something that I've, I've always said about Canadians, and you know because I've said it on this show several times, that Canadians have an extremely high tolerance for liberal corruption but they have no tolerance at all for conservatives. And, uh, and that's, that's what happens in Canada because conservatives are always just trying to find a way to get the, uh, get Canadians to love them. They end up not being conservatives anymore. And then the conservatives that are in the party uh, you know, break away and, you know, they start a new party, reform party. They, or, or the, uh, you know, there's, there's been several, you know, the wild rose party in Alberta. Um, the, uh, the, what was it? The Saskatchewan party. Um, you know, there's always conservatives not happy with conservatives. Because the conservatives stop being conservative. Because they just want Canadians to love them. And the sooner conservatives understand that Canadians are never going to love them, that maybe they should just start being conservatives. Because it doesn't matter if they're trying to be liberals or liberal light. The, the, the Canadians don't, don't want that anyway. Like you're not offering anything different than what the the other parties are offering. So what's the point in your existence? Yeah. See, now you're reminding me of a rant that I had done for the last election federally um, about Aaron O'Toole and that exact thing. And 
I remember mentioning in that rant that the media is never going to like you, Mr. O'Toole, because you wear a blue suit. And and you're right. I mean, they spend so much time trying to move to the left and be more quote unquote moderate that the true conservatives end up thumbing their nose at them. And then you're right. They go and pick up their marbles and go home. And here we are stuck with another Trudeau government or in the, yeah. in the case of the provinces, an NDP government. And well, thankfully only in BC right now, but you know what I mean? Yeah. But the, but I mean, you know, one thing that you end up with is you, the reason that can conservatives don't gain favor a big reason is because they're not consistent. Conservatives, conservative parties in Canada are just not consistent because they start out as conservative parties and then they morph into a liberal party. And it's like nobody knows what the hell they stand for because they never stand for something long enough. And and, and now you've got Jason Kenney in Alberta who, I mean, you and I have both said on this show that he dropped the ball. Um, as premier of Alberta, he's Big had time. some, he's had some shining moments, but he's had a lot of bombs dropped in his lap and he didn't handle them very well. And so, I mean, I understand why people are, 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 you know, they're, they're fed up with him. I mean, he has not done a great job. I mean, you, the, the, my my favorite moment of Jason Kenny as a premier is when I met him at Grey Cup. Yeah, that was awesome. Because he was drunk. <laughs> 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 and it was great. Like, yeah. that, but that's my favorite moment of him as premier. And that shouldn't be my favorite moment of him as premier. But it is. Because he <laughs> hasn't done anything right well i mean he's done very little right yeah no that's right and well one thing he did right was he at least endorsed the candidacy of brian jean uh, in fort mcmurray and i wonder how many people in the united conservative party are going to say hey, you know what maybe brian jean's the guy we should have picked after all yeah well i mean i i kind of gotta wonder why brian jean is back in there unless he wants to be leader again I have to assume that's the only reason. Well, yeah, it's got to be. I mean, he was, and for those of you who don't know, he was the leader of the Wild Rose Party when the two parties uh, merged. And so, I mean, the only reason that he would be back in politics, as far as I'm concerned, is is to run for that leadership. Yeah, I would assume that too, and I think he would probably have a lot of support. Now, I know some of the UCP members moved over to the Wild Rose Alliance, I think it's called now. They were, uh, they're essentially a separatist party. So I don't think we're going to see a big splash from them. So I think we'll probably focus our attention on the United Conservative Party because it will stay together. But this is really going to get interesting if Brian Jean does decide he has leadership aspirations. Yeah. And honestly, I, I'm, I'll be completely honest. I, I think that Brian Jean would be a better leader. I thought he was the better leader uh, when the two parties joined. Um, and I was disappointed to see him, uh, you know, res- you know, retire. 
So yeah. I'm kind of glad I'm glad he's back. Yeah, and he's actually conservative. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, he is. <laughs> that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, but that's that's the that's the biggest problem with conservatives in Canada, though, is that they need to find some uh, consistency and stop trying people that you shouldn't be trying to please. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to put it. I mean, they always talk about, oh, we've got this big tent. Well, as soon as you get that, quote unquote, big tent, then you're in the, again, quote unquote, mushy middle. And nobody listens to what you have to say because then you start being like Trudeau and trying to pander to everybody. And I mean, by the time the election campaign was done federally, Aaron O'Toole was actually promising to spend more money than Trudeau was. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I mean, it's when you have this big tent mentality, it's like you you don't stand for anything anymore. And because you can't, if you stand for things, then you don't have that big tent anymore because half the people aren't going to agree with that thing that you stand for. And I mean, I've been member, a member of conservative parties my whole life. And I don't, I don't know what this big tent is that they keep talking about because I've personally never seen it. Um, whenever I've been in, you know, uh, uh, when I've been to um, to conventions and stuff, most of the people that I've talked to there are way more conservative than the party itself. Like, I don't know where these policies come from half the time because everybody I talk to is way more conservative than any of the party policies. Yeah. Well, I can see that. And I think maybe that's why leadership gets challenged so often because how can they provide any kind of leadership when they stand for nothing? I mean, I think that's why you and I both admired Preston Manning so much in the earlier stages of reform because he actually had a set of principles he believed in. He was willing to stand by them until he realized he wanted to be prime minister. And then it all kind of got thrown out the window. But when he started, he was like, yeah, this is who I am. And I loved it. Yeah. No, I mean, Preston Manning, uh, in, in the, what, the first decade of, of reform was... He was, he was, I admired him so much because no matter how unpopular the media tried to portray him, like, because the media really, I mean, they slandered him. Oh, totally. Um, And he stood his ground and he stood by his policies. Um, he, uh, he, he was, I, I admired him immensely well and the funny thing is that during the time reform was on the rise my uh, my late brother was living in quebec at the time and he said people in quebec actually respected preston manning because he he actually said what he really thought and that didn't mean they'd vote for him but at least they had respect for him because he was honest yeah yeah well and i think that's the thing like people respect that 
That's why reform parties swept Western Canada. It, it wasn't yeah. because it was a big FU to the liberals. It was because they stood for something. And he convinced people that it was the right something to stand for. Right? Like, And that's what I find that the, that the conservative leadership has really lacked since Stephen Harper left. Was it nobody has been able to convince anyone that what we're... St- what they stand for is 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 right they don't try to convince they try to conform rather than convince you that what they stand for is right because that's what they have to do they have to convince people to vote for them they have to say this is why we're right we're right because x y and z and if you and if you believe that too you need to vote for us not trying to find what it is that people will vote for you got to convince people to vote for you yeah see that's the ticket right there i mean politics isn't just watching which way the herd is walking and then try to get in front of them i mean it's exactly what you said it's i'm taking a stand this is what i believe come stand with me and people will do it yeah people respect conviction people respect honesty and and if you are honest about your conviction people will support you yeah that's right and and speaking speaking of that what do you think of of uh of premier mo uh declaring that saskatchewan should be a nation within a nation I think it's about bloody goddamn time he did. Um, it's unfortunate that it took such an event as Trudeau virtue signaling that COP26. But, I mean, these are ideas that, well, you and I went back in Alberta had, had promoted. And I'd mentioned in my rant the other day about the Alberta firewall letter 20 years ago, talking about these exact things. Like, it's time to start asserting your provincial autonomy. And... Yeah. For the Eastern media to belittle Scott Moe, Saskatchewan, Western Canada in general, for daring to want the equal treatment to Quebec, just points out the absolute arrogance of some of these Eastern media types. And I'm looking right at you, Dan Legere. Um, I referred to him in my rant the other day because he was one of the most pompous windbags I've heard in a long time. I had some quite vulgar words for him uh, before my rant, I did not include them in my rant, but it's uh, it's about time. And I actually, I, I stand right behind Scott Moe in making that declaration because all he's asking for is equality, equality with Quebec. Yeah, well, I think it's about damn time that premiers in this country start standing up for their provincial rights, because right now the federal government is actually overstepping its, its, uh, its you know, rights. It, uh, federal rights like they're they they have the federal government is wielding more power than it's than it's constitutionally allowed in this country but the premiers just sit back and let them do it because if they don't trudeau will cut their funding for you know what x y and z right and yep. um but the premiers the premiers are more powerful in this country than the prime minister but yet they don't it's like they're scared to demand that power 
or demand that uh, uh, that position in their own province. It's like it's like in the U.S. You would never see governors, especially you know, uh, Republican states. You would never see governors just give up their state rights the way that Canadian premiers do. I mean, Canadian premiers are actually quite powerful in this country and a lot more powerful than they than they are acting than they're acting because they're just they do just won't grab onto the power that that they constitutionally uh have the only one that does is quebec yeah that's right so uh well as a way to wrap this this show up canada we need a ron DeSantis here <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i and i think he's going to be the next president of the united states myself but well, he should be. I think he would be great. Yeah. So, but anyway. Canada, province has got to take a stand. That's probably a good way to wrap it up is that leadership has to come from somewhere. It sure as hell isn't in Ottawa. And it sure as hell isn't in the conservative parties for some stupid reason. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, yeah. All right, Canada, we'll leave it there. Lewis, stay safe out there in BC. Take it easy out there and all our best to you from from the audience and thank you canada for tuning in until next time it is tony in saskatchewan and lewis out here in bc good night good night